You're listening to At Any Rate, JP Morgan's global research podcast, where we take a look at the stories behind some of the biggest trends and themes in today's fixed income, currencies, and commodities markets. Welcome. I'm Alex Rover from the U.S. Fixed Income Strategy Team at JP Morgan. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about quantitative tightening, and in particular, how it's influencing both the asset and liability side of, of the Fed's balance sheet, as well as the adjacent markets. Joining me for the conversation today are Michael Faroli, our chief U.S. economist, Trini Ramaswamy, the head of our interest rate derivative strategy team, and Teresa Ho, the head of our short-term fixed income strategy team. Our comments today are based off of a few different research reports we published recently. The first of these is the Fed's new undoing project, which was published on June 2nd of 2022. And the other two are the mid-year outlooks, respectively, for the interest rate derivative strategy team and for the short duration strategy team, both of which were published on June 24th, 2022. These reports are available to institutional fixed income clients of JP Morgan Securities on JP Morgan Markets. So let's kick off this discussion. We'll turn to Mike Faroli. Uh, Mike, can you start us off by talking to us about what really is the policy point of the balance sheet reduction? Yeah, so I think there are several reasons why they're reducing the size of the balance sheet. Uh, so right now they're oversupplying uh, the public with their liabilities relative to what is kind of the natural demand out there. And so that gives them the runway to reduce the balance sheet. And I think there are a couple of reasons they would want to use that runway. One is political. They have taken some heat uh, from Congress for uh, the you know, unnaturally large size of the balance sheet. Another is uh, if you reduce the balance sheet now, it should give you some uh, uh, some space to increase the balance sheet again if the need arises in a future crisis and you have to do QE. And I think a third reason is that it does, um, you know, to, to a certain degree, tighten financial conditions, which they obviously uh, are, you know, want to do in this environment. So on that point of, of tightening financial conditions, you know, a question that's come up a few times has been, you know, sort of what's the hike equivalency of, of, of the balance sheet runoff? Is it, is it making up for, for, you know, hikes that the Fed's not actually doing? Yeah, so I think if you uh, look at the current balance sheet reduction plan relative to a baseline of no reduction at all, uh, and you apply some of the estimates that were uh, inferred during the QE period, that would suggest that, uh, this current QT is worth about 50 basis points uh, of rate hikes. Now, one should um, you know, understand that those estimates are highly uncertain. And so while that is probably a decent estimate, I don't think the Fed is thinking about necessarily uh, adjusting their path in light of an estimate like that, uh, just because it is so, uh, so uncertain. And it's not like the market's waiting around for the for the runoff to happen. It feels like it's it's priced in a fair chunk of of this already. It's already sort of tightened via rate expectations. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, in principle, at least, given that you know, asset prices are forward looking, this should already be mostly in, in the price and in financial conditions. So, thinking about the balance sheet and sort of setting aside the the asset side of it, I guess let's. Focus on the liabilities, and and really, what's the what's the Fed's end game in terms of liabilities? What are they trying to do with reserves? What's their goal, and how does how does RRP factor into this longer term? Yeah, 
So I think the end game here is, you know, the Fed's balance sheet is a is a public service, and it is to provide uh, its liabilities, which are useful to the public. Uh, some of those are very, you know, simple, like the amount of currency demanded is taken for, for granted. Uh, it's not a big deal. Uh, I think the two other liabilities that the Fed is, useful liabilities that the Fed is providing uh, to the public, uh, uh, it's a little trickier. Uh, right now, bank reserves are being oversupplied relative to the demand that banks probably naturally would have uh, uh, for reserves. We don't know exactly how much demand there is for reserves, uh, underlying demand before that you know, becomes scarce uh, asset for banks. Uh, the best estimates out there are kind of inferred from when, um, you know, when that became binding last time, which was in 2019, that was around one and a half trillion. You scale that up by the growth of the economy since then, and it might be something like two trillion of, of reserves that banks uh, have an inherent demand for. So right now, that, was, that liability is being oversupplied by about a trillion dollars. And so the Fed probably would like to see bank reserves decline uh, further to something like that. Um, now, they don't know exactly where that point at which reserves become scarce is. And I think they're going to have to, you know, be very judicious in observing uh, you know, short-term short interest rates to determine when uh, when we've hit the point of reserve scarcity uh, among, among the, the demand among banks. And then I think, you know, an even more tricky question is the ultimate fate of the RRP facility. The RRP facility, at least, was originally created as a uh, not to supply uh, necessarily uh, liabilities to the public, usefully supply liabilities to the public. It, it was originally created to, as a um, backstop to help uh, control overnight interest rates, given some of the issues initially with the leaky floor. Um, now, uh, the role of RRP has grown enormously relative to that initial sort of backstop role. And I think there are some unanswered questions about what the Fed eventually wants to do with this uh, facility. I think there are some out there, some on the committee who would like to see, you know, the Fed shrink its uh, footprint in financial markets, which would mean that they would eventually, um, uh, you know, shrink the RRP out of, out of existence. However, there are probably are going to be others who may see some benefits to financial markets from, you know, keeping the RRP facility around, having learned that it also supplies a useful liability uh, to the public. So I think uh, the RRP, you know, the fate of the RRP facility, I think is going to be uh, an interesting discussion, but one that hasn't been uh, interesting debate, but one that hasn't been resolved yet. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good answer uh, on that. It just it doesn't seem like um, it seems like it's definitely evolved. And with with SOFR being repo based and RP tied to the repo market, it feels like there's probably some other sort of financial stability aspect to it as well, perhaps going yeah. forward. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I think that's that's very helpful for today, Mike. Uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Let's turn to Srini. So, Srini, what do we know about the link between reserves and bank deposits, and why does it matter to the markets? Uh, yes. Um, so, it helps to begin by uh, thinking about what QE really does, right? So, when the Fed creates reserves, it doesn't just create reserves, it buys assets, right? So, what that means is in the rest of the financial system, people are left with sort of fewer fixed income assets like treasuries or mortgage backed securities. 
um, and they're left with sort of more quote unquote cash in the bank. Um, and from the banking system's perspective, what this means is more deposit liabilities. Um, and you know, for the banks, the reserves that the Fed creates are just their assets. So net-net, what this means is when the Fed creates reserves in large quantities in a short period of time, um, it creates um, you know, sort of an almost equivalent amount of sort of growth in bank balance sheets, right? It creates more deposits and it creates reserves, of course, on the, on the asset side of their balance sheet. Um, so that's pretty much what did happen in sort of the post-pandemic uh, period of QE, and which is why you know we saw sort of very sharp deposit growth, and that creates um, that created uh, a leverage problem uh, for banks. What can you tell us about the empirical link between the RRP balances and reserves, and how does that all tie back to those uh, these leverage constraints? Yes. Um, so this uh, again, it helps to sort of uh, look in the rearview mirror and think about the the things that have happened in you know since two thousand and twenty. Um, so we had sort of the initial rounds where, you know, the Fed's balance sheet grew a lot, reserves were created, banks had to absorb it. So, you know, like, so we were in the situation where the Fed was trying to create a large quantity of reserve liabilities um, and banks initially were able to absorb it, but eventually uh, had increasing difficulties in absorbing those reserves because of, um, of, of leverage constraints. So this is sort of where the RRP program came in. Um, so by design, reserves are liabilities of the Fed, but they're assets for you know, banks and they can only sit on bank balance sheets. Um, so uh, the creation of the RRP program was in a sense, a way to create liabilities that don't have to sit on bank balance sheets. Uh, and it's no surprise that you know, effectively what happened was um, reserves reached a point where they became sticky because it was you know, leverage constraining for the banks. Um, and RRPs grew, uh, you know, from there on, um, you know, sort of filling filling the need for the Fed to grow its balance sheet and create more liabilities. So that's the the empirical link has been in a world of leverage constraints for banks, uh, reserves become a lot more sticky, uh, or at least they resist further growth, um, and any further growth needed has been in the form of RRPs. And following up on that, in, in your research, you've basically sort of said that, you know, this plays out in reverse as we start uh, quantitative tightening. How does, how does the plumbing of all that work? Yeah, on the way down, it's interesting. So the, uh, the ordering, if you will, sort of reverses a bit. Um, you know, on the way down, as the Fed starts to shrink its, uh, its, uh, its balance sheet, so its assets start to go down, but so must its liabilities. Um, and leverage is still, at this point in time, binding for banks, which means it's very likely that reserves will bear sort of the brunt of the initial decline in the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, it's sort of what we are seeing so far. I mean, it's still early days, but uh, that's sort of what we are seeing. And uh, it is sort of the natural response of a leverage-constrained banking system. You know, So on the way down, reserves are likely to go down a lot faster initially. Uh, but we think it will reach sort of a, an end game. Um, you know, there's probably a level at which reserves become relatively non-binding. You know, from a leverage-constrained perspective for banks, uh, probably you know, uh, hard to know exactly where. But you know, our our analysis of sort of bank capital and bank balance sheets, you know, suggests that it's probably a number like two and a half trillion in reserves. Uh, after which we think reserves will become sticky, right? So initially, reserves go down with you know, sort of declines in the Fed balance sheet, 
Um, and then once you get to that two and a half trillion level, it's more likely that you know further declines will probably be in uh, you know met with declines in RRPs. Thanks, Srini. Let's turn now to Teresa. Teresa is going to take a look at this, I think, more from the angle of users of the RRP program, including the money market funds, uh, who are probably the biggest users of the program. Teresa, I guess maybe the good first place to start is, you know, why has the RRP program, you know, grown so much, and, and in particular, why has it grown so much recently? Sure. Uh, thanks, Alex. I would say there are several factors behind the very dramatic growth that we've seen in the Fed's RRP program. One is the supply and demand imbalance that we continue to see in the money markets. This has been a persistent issue for quite some time, going back to the early to middle part of last year, when Treasury started paying down a significant portion of its T-bill outstandings. This resulted in just a really large reduction in the amount of investable assets in the money markets. And meanwhile, on the demand side, there continues to be just an abundance of liquidity in the system, as evident by the growth in government money market fund AUMs. So in the absence of available su supply, a lot of money funds turn to the RRP facility as a source of backstop supply. And then away from that, I think current market dynamics further contributed to the growth of the RRP program. Certainly with T-bills and repo trading at sub-RRP levels, you know, investors like money funds are, are better off going into the RRP and getting that higher rate. Also, you know, we've had a pretty sharp shift in monetary policy this year, and there remained a lot of uncertainty as to the Fed's path for interest rates. And so as a result, um, a lot of these money funds have been dramatically shortening the duration and, and using RRP as a place to hide out in overnights for the time being. So between those three factors, you know, they are what's keeping the balances at this facility elevated on a day-to-day -day basis. So what are your expectations for RRP balances going forward? Yeah, I think going forward, at least in the near term, I think the balances will continue to stay pretty elevated, um, at least kind of above the $2 trillion mark. Um, and, and I don't think we'll really see a reduction in RRP balances um, until, you know, more like a 2023, um, you know, the calendar year 2023. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is because, you know, currently um, what we're seeing in the money markets is, is really this push and pull factor taking place between bank deposits and money funds. The push factor is the fact that large money center banks continue to be, you know, leverage constrained, as Trini talked about. So, you know, in that sense, they will continue to try to shed non-operational deposits, most of which will find its way into the money funds. The pull factor is this divergence in yield between bank deposits and money funds. And so with the Fed on the move, money funds have exhibited a much higher beta to interest rates while deposit yields have lagged. So at this it will at some point incentivize money to move out bank deposits and into money funds and ultimately find its way into the RRP. So as that's taking place, I think that will continue to kind of push money and keep RRP balances um, elevated for the remainder of this year. Um, that said, I, I think this will start to reverse um, going into 2023 uh, with, with quantitative tightening happening. Um, you know, as the Fed embarks on, you know, just a, a larger reduction in balance sheet in 2023. And we're estimating kind of between now 
and and the end of next year, that one and a half trillion dollars of reserves will, will be drained. Um, that will have basically drained enough liquidity from the system from the current high levels that we're at, and that we will start to see, you know, basically banks start to borrow of the CPCD market again. And so at that point, um, with more supply in the market, that will start to kind of pull money out of the RRP program. Um, and, and for the money funds to start investing, you know, in the supply that's available uh, in, in other asset classes. And that will be a way to drive RRP balances lower. Um, in the meantime, I think, you know, as, as we step further into the tightening cycle, um, I think the need to shorten duration or stay short amongst investors will, will also start to fade. Um, and on the margin, as a result of that, we could see the money funds, you know, being more willing to to move a little bit further out the curve. And when that happens, you know, that should alleviate some of the pressures that we're seeing on the facility right now. But again, you know, given kind of where we're on the cycle, it feels like, you know, at least for the time being, you know, 2022 is, is going to be where we see RRP balances stay pretty elevated and we won't really see a reduction in balances until 2023. Thanks, Teresa. That concludes our comments today. I want to thank uh, Mike Faroli, Srini Ramaswamy, and Teresa Ho again for joining us on the podcast today. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us as well. Please stay tuned for more episodes of At Any Rate, JP Morgan's global research podcast series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read JP Morgan research reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2022, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on June 30th, 2022.